Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We have two great Banjo Patterson short stories for you today. The first, The Downfall of Mulligans, and the second, The Amateur Gardener. We hope you enjoy them. The sporting men of Mulligans were an exceedingly knowing lot. In fact, they had obtained the name amongst their neighbors of being a little bit too knowing. They had taken down the adjoining town in a variety of ways. They were always winning maiden plates with horses which were shrewdly suspected to be old and well-tried performers in disguise. When the sports of Paddy's Flat unearthed a phenomenal runner in the shape of a black fellow named Frying Pan Joe, the Mulligan contingent immediately took the trouble to discover a black fellow of their own, and they made a match and won all the Paddy's Flat money with ridiculous ease. Then their black fellow turned out to be a well-known Sydney performer. They had a man who could fight, a man who could be backed to jump five feet ten inches, a man who could kill eight pigeons out of nine at thirty yards, a man who could make a break of fifty or so at billiards if he tried. They could all drink, and they all had that indefinite look of infinite wisdom and conscious superiority which belongs only to those who know something about horseflesh. They knew a great many things never learnt at Sunday school. They were experts at cards and dice. They would go to immense trouble to work off any small swindle in the sporting line. In short, the general consensus of opinion was that they were a very fly crowd at Mulligan's, and if you went there you wanted to keep your eyes skinned, or they'd have you over a three-penny bit. There were races at Sydney one Christmas, and a select band of the Mulligan sportsmen were going down to them. They were in high feather, having just won a lot of money from a young Englishman at pigeon-shooting, by the simple method of slipping blank cartridges into his gun when he wasn't looking, and then backing the bird. They intended to make a fortune out of the Sydney people, and admirers who came to see them off only asked them as a favor to leave money enough in Sydney to make it worthwhile for another detachment to go later on. Just as the train was departing, a priest came running onto the platform, and was bundled into the carriage where our mulligan friends were. The door was slammed to, and away they went. His reverence was hot and perspiring, and for a few minutes mopped himself with a handkerchief, while the silence was unbroken except by the rattle of the train. After a while, one of the Mulligan fraternity got out a pack of cards and proposed a game to while away the time. There was a young squatter in the carriage who looked as if he might be induced to lose a few pounds, and the sportsmen thought they would be neglecting their opportunities if they did not try to get a bit to go on with from him. He agreed to play and just as a matter of courtesy, they asked the priest whether he would take a hand. "'And what game do you play?' he asked, in a melodious brogue. They explained that any game was equally acceptable to them, but they thought it right to add that they generally played for money. "'And sure, and it don't matter for once in a way,' said he. "'Oh, you'll take a hand, be dad. Or I'm only going fifty miles, so I can't lose a fortune.' They lifted a light portmanteau onto their knees to make a table, and five of them, three of the mulligan crowd, and the two strangers, started to have a little game of poker. Things looked rosy for the mulligan boys, who chuckled as they thought how soon they were making a beginning, and what a magnificent yarn they would have to tell about how they rooked a priest on the way down. Nothing sensational resulted from the first few deals, and the priest began to ask questions. "'Why you going to the races?' They said they were. "'Ah!' "'And I suppose you'll be betting with them bookmakers. "'Betting on the horses, will yous? "'They do be terrible knowing men, them bookmakers. "'They tell me. "'I wouldn't bet much if I was ye,' he said, with an affable smile. 
"'If you go betting, ye would look in with them bookmakers.' The boys listened with a bored air, and reckoned by the time they parted, the priest would have learnt that they were well able to look after themselves. They went steadily on with the game, and the priest and the young squatter won slightly. This was part of the plan to lead them on to the plunge. They neared the station where the priest was to get out. He had won rather more than they liked, so the signal was passed round to put the cross on. Poker is a game at which a man need not risk much unless he feels inclined, and on this deal the priest stood out. Consequently, when they drew up at his station, he was still a few pounds in. "'Bedad,' he said, "'I don't like going away with your money. I'll go on to the next station so as you can have revenge.' Then he sat down again, and play went on in earnest. The man of religion seemed to have the devil's own luck. When he was dealt a good hand, he invariably backed it well, and if he had a bad one, he wouldn't risk anything. The sports grew painfully anxious as they saw him getting further and further ahead of them, "'pratting away all the time like a big schoolboy. "'The squatter was the biggest loser so far, "'but the priest was the only winner. "'All the others were out of pocket. "'His reverence played with great dash "'and seemed to know a lot about the game, "'so that on arrival at the second station "'he was a good round sum in the pocket. "'He rose to leave them with many expressions of regret "'and laughingly promised full revenge next time. "'Just as he was opening the carriage door, "'one of the mulligan fraternity said in a stage whisper, "'He's a blanky sink-bucket. "'If he can come this far, "'let him come on to Sydney and play for double the stakes.' "'Like a shot, the priest turned on him. "'Be dad, and if that's your talk, "'I'll play for double stakes from here to the other side of glory. "'Do yous think men are mice because they eat cheese? "'It isn't one of the Ryans who'd be fearing to give any man his revenge.' "'He snorted defiance at them, grabbed his cards, and waited in.' The others felt that a crisis was at hand and settled down to play in a dead silence. But the priest kept on winning steadily, and the old man of the mulligan push saw that something decisive must be done, and decided on a big plunge to get all the money back on one hand. By a dexterous manipulation of the cards, he dealt himself four kings, almost the best hand at poker. Then he began with assumed hesitation to bet on his hand, raising the stake little by little. "'So you're trying to bluff,' "'So you are,' said the priest, and immediately raised it. "'The others had dropped out of the game "'and watched with painful interest the stake grow and grow. "'The Mulligan fraternity felt a cheerful certainty "'that the old man had made things safe "'and regarded themselves as mercifully delivered "'from an unpleasant situation. "'The priest went on doggedly raising the stake "'in response to his antagonist's challenges "'until it had attained huge dimensions. "'Sure, that's high enough,' said he. "'putting into the pool sufficient to entitle him "'to see his opponent's hand. "'The old man, with great gravity, "'laid down his four kings, "'whereat the mulligan boys let a big sigh of relief escape them. "'Then the priest laid down four aces "'and scooped the pool. "'The sportsmen of mulligans "'never quite knew how they got out to Randwick. "'They borrowed a bit of money in Sydney "'and found themselves in the saddling paddock "'in a half-dazed condition, "'trying to realize what had happened to them. During the afternoon they were up at the end of the lawn near the ledger stand and could hear the babble of tongues. Small bookmakers, thimble-riggers, confidence men, and so on, blind their trades outside. In the tumult of voices they heard one that sounded familiar. Soon suspicion grew into certainty, and they knew that it was the voice of Father Ryan. They walked to the fence and looked over. This is what he was saying. Uh, "'Pop it down, gents! Pop it down!' "'If you don't put down a brick, you can't pick up a castle.' 
I'll bet no one here can pick the knave of hearts out of these three cards. I'll bet half a sovereign. No one here can find the knave. Then the crowd parted a little, and through the opening they could see him distinctly, doing a great business and showing wonderful dexterity with the pasteboard. There is still enough money in Sydney to make it worthwhile for another detachment to come down from Mulligan's, but the next lot will hesitate about playing poker with priests in the train. We'll return with our second Banjo Patterson story right after these sponsor messages. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. And now, The Amateur Gardener by Banjo Patterson. The first step in amateur gardening is to sit down and consider what good you are going to get by it. If you are only a tenant by the month, as most people are, it is obviously not of much use for you to plant a fruit orchard or an avenue of oak trees. What you want is something that will grow quickly, and will stand transplanting, for when you move it would be a sin to leave behind you the plants on which you have spent so much labor and so much patent manure. We knew a man once who was a bookmaker by trade, and a ledger bookmaker at that, but he had a passion for horses and flowers. When he had a big win, as he occasionally did, It was his custom to have movable wooden stables built on skids put up in the yard and to have tons of the best soil that money could buy carted into the garden of the premises which he was occupying. Then he would keep splendid horses and grow rare roses and show-bench chrysanthemums. His landlord passing by would see the garden in a blaze of color and promise himself to raise the bookmaker's rent next quarter day. However, when the bookmaker took the knock, as he invariably did at least twice a year, It was his pleasing custom to move without giving notice. He would hitch two cart horses to the stables and haul them right away at night. He would not only dig up the roses, trees, and chrysanthemums he had planted, but would also cart away the soil he had brought in. In fact, he used to shift the garden bodily. He had one garden that he shifted to nearly every suburb in Sydney, and he always argued that the change of air was invaluable for chrysanthemums. Being determined, then, to go in for gardening on common-sense principles, and having decided on the shrubs you mean to grow, the next consideration is your chance of growing them. If your neighbor keeps game fowls, it may be taken for granted that before long they will pay you a visit, and you will see the rooster scratching your pot plants out by the roots, as if they were so much straw, just to make a nice place to lie down and fluff the dust over himself. Goats will also stray in from the street, and bite the young shoots off, selecting the most valuable plants with a discrimination that would do credit to a professional gardener. It is therefore useless to think of growing delicate or squeamish plants. Most amateur gardeners maintain a lifelong struggle against the devices of nature, but when the forces of man and the forces of nature come into conflict, nature wins every time. Nature has decreed that certain plants shall be hardy and therefore suitable to suburban amateur gardeners. The suburban amateur gardener persists in trying to grow quite other plants and in despising those marked out by nature for his use. It is to correct this tendency that this article is written. The greatest standby to the amateur gardeners should undoubtedly be the blue-flowered shrub known as plumbago. This homely but hardy plant will grow anywhere. It naturally prefers a good soil and a sufficient rainfall, 
"'but if need be, it will worry along without either. "'Fowls cannot scratch it up, "'and even the goat turns away dismayed "'from its hard-featured branches. "'The flower is not strikingly beautiful, "'nor ravishingly scented, "'but it flowers nine months out of the year. "'Smothered with street dust "'and scorched by the summer sun, "'you will find that faithful old plumbago "'plugging along undismayed. "'A plant like this should be encouraged, "'but the misguided amateur gardener, "'as a rule, despises it. The plant known as the churchyard geranium is also one marked out by providence for the amateur. So is the cosmea, which comes up year after year where once planted. In creepers, begonia and lantana will hold their own, under difficulties perhaps as well as any that can be found. In trees, the Port Jackson fig is a patriotic one to grow. It's a fine plant to provide exercise, as it sheds its leaves unsparingly and requires the whole garden to be swept up every day. Your aim as a student of nature should be to encourage the survival of the fittest. There is a grass called nutgrass, and another called grass, either of which holds its own against anything living or dead. The average gardening manual gives you recipes for destroying these. Why should you destroy them in favor of a sickly plant that needs constant attention? No, the grass is the selected of nature, and who are you to interfere with nature? Having decided to go in for strong, simple plants that will hold their own, and a bit over, you must get your implements of husbandry. The spade is the first thing, but the average ironmonger will show you an unwieldy weapon only meant to be used by navvies. Don't buy it. Get a small spade, about half size. It is nice and light and doesn't tire the wrist, and with it you can make a good display of enthusiasm and earn the hypocritical admiration of your wife. After digging for half an hour or so, Get it to rub your back with any of the backache cures. From that moment you will have no further need for the spade. A barrow is about the only other thing needed. Anyhow, it is almost a necessity for wheeling cases of whiskey up to the house. A rake is useful when your terrier dog has bailed up a cat and will not attack it until the cat is made to run. Talking of terrier dogs, an acquaintance of ours has a dog that does all his gardening. The dog is a small elderly terrier with a failing memory. As soon as the terrier has planted a bone in the garden, the owner slips over, digs it up, and takes it away. When that terrier goes back and finds the bone gone, he distrusts his memory and begins to think that perhaps he's made a mistake and has dug in the wrong place. So he sets to work and digs patiently all over the garden, turning over acres of soil in the course of his search. This saves his master a lot of backache. The sensible amateur gardener, then, will not attempt to fight with nature, but will fall in with her views. But what's more pleasant than to get out of bed at 11.30 on a Sunday morning, to look out of your window at a lawn waving with the feathery plumes of paramata grass, and to see beyond it the churchyard geranium flourishing side by side with the plumbago and the poor Jackson fig? The garden gate blows open, and the local commando of goats, headed by an aged and fragrant patriarch, locally known as Duet, rushes in. But their teeth will barely bite through the wiry stalks of the paramata grass, and the plumbago and the fig tree failed to attract them. And therefore long they stand on one another's shoulders, scale the fence, and disappear into the next-door garden, where a fanatic is trying to grow show roses. After the last goat has scaled your neighbor's fence, and only Duet is left, your little dog discovers him. Duet beats a hurried retreat, apparently at full speed, with the dog exactly one foot behind him in frantic pursuit. 
We say apparently at full speed, because experience has taught that DeWitt can run as fast as a greyhound when he likes, but he never exerts himself to go faster than is necessary to keep just in front of whatever dog is after him. Here in the scrimmage, your neighbor comes on to his veranda and sees the chase going down the street. Ha! That wretched old duet again, he says. Small hope your dog has of catching him. Why don't you get a garden gate like mine, so that he won't get in? No, he can't get in at your gate, is the reply. But I think his commando are in your back garden now. Then follows a frantic rush. Your neighbor falls downstairs in his haste, and the goat commando, after stopping to bite some priceless pot plants of your neighbor's as they come out, skips easily back over the fence and through your gate into the street again. The game fowls of your other neighbor come pluttering into your garden and scratch and chuckle and fluff themselves under your plumbago bush. But you don't worry. Why should you? They can't hurt it. And besides, you know that the small black hen and the big yellow one, who have disappeared from the throng, are even now laying their daily egg for you behind the thickest bush. Your little dog rushes frantically up and down the front bed of your garden, barking and racing, and tearing up the ground, because his rival little dog, who lives down the street, is going past with his master, and each pretends that he wants to be at the other, as they have pretended every day for the past three years. The performance he's going through doesn't disturb you. Why should it? By following the directions in this article, you have selected plants he cannot hurt. After breakfasting at noon, you stroll out, and perhaps, smooth with your foot, or, with your spade, the inequalities made by the hens. You gather up casually the eggs they have laid, you whistle to your little dog, and go out for a stroll with a light heart. Thanks for joining us for these two Banjo Patterson stories. Hope you enjoy them as much as I do. We always appreciate reviews for a number of reasons. Reviews tell us where you're from, and they tell us about why you like our stories and our show. Please do remember we do appreciate our supporters at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network, who, for a few dollars every month, help to support our show going forward, and we appreciate that very much. Until next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern, everyone, stay safe, take care, and we'll be back soon.